We are currently looking at the heir of Balaam, as Jude calls it. And last week, uh, what we saw was some pretty incredible interaction between Balaam and God. I mean, it was really amazing. And through this interaction, we recognize that this all-powerful pagan sorcerer, Gentile, had a radical life experience with the one true God, the very God who breathed life into him. And this cannot be denied. This is an awesome thing. And you, you look at his life, you look at the story that we're given within the Torah, and what you find, and I'll reiterate this point, you find all those elements that are embodied in the gospel message, they're here with Balaam. I mean, Balaam experiences the grace of God multiple times, not even just once, but multiple times. He confesses not just sin, but he confesses Yahweh Elohai, the Lord is my God, the Lord my God, not, not Baal Elohai, not Molech Elohai, he says Yahweh Elohai. And then you see where the Lord, the interaction that he has, the Lord convicts him of things that are not right in his life. And how does he respond? He moves in repentance. And actually what he does is he says, if there's anything that displeases you, I don't want to be a part of it. I'm going to turn back. I will go. And that is actually where we left off, is in verse 34. We're going to pick up this story. We're going to build upon this story. And then I, I, I can tell you, when we get to the last part, there, there's going to be a part three here for Balaam. When we get to that last part, that's where everything's going to come full circle. That's where you're really going to appreciate everything we've covered these two weeks. It's going to mean something. It's going to be intense. That, that week proves to be intense. So with that said, let's pick it up in the story where we left off. And here we go. Numbers chapter 22, verse 35. Then the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, what does he say? He says this. Go with the men. Now, hopefully you were here last week with me. But one thing you need to understand is verse 35, put it right next to verse 20. What we learned last week in verse 20, there were two specific commandments that the Lord gave to Balaam. And that was the first was in verse 20. If the men come and call you, then go with the men. If they come and call you, you can rise and go. Notice... What it says here, it doesn't have the preposition. It says, go with the men. Very specific. Now, go back to verse 20, the second commandment that he goes on to give there. And he says, but only the word that I speak to you, that you shall say, that you shall do. Now, look at what he goes on to say here. This is going to make sense when we get through this. But only the word that I speak to you, oh, that you shall speak. So Balaam went with the princes of Balak. I want you to understand something. Look at this closely. Because he doesn't say what he said in verse 20. It's a little bit different. Because he said, the word that I speak to you, that you shall do. Here he says, speak. I want you to grab a hold of this. Because what we are seeing is the Lord giving Balaam the commission, the very commission that is given to every believer in the Messiah Yeshua. And what do I mean by this? Well, I'm going to let James explain it to you because he'll do a much better job than I will. And this is what he says. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Can't make this stuff up. Literally, God first tells Balaam, as I say, you're to do. And as I say, you are to also say. 
you're to speak. Here, James, James is telling the believers in the Messiah Yeshua the exact same thing that God is telling Balaam. Can't make it up. And just to clarify what James is actually talking about, so speak and so do as those who have judged by the law of liberty. What is the law of liberty? Just go back, start in chapter 1. That's where he begins. We quoted it last week, where he says, Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. See, to James, the way he describes the law of liberty is those who rise above the law and they walk in it. They walk in the commandments of God. They're not brought under the law, which means they're failing to please God. They're failing to walk in his ordinances. And this is very, very plain. This is very simple. And so when you see this happening in this story, it's, it's an awesome thing. I'm telling you, all of the elements that you would expect to see in the gospel, they're right here in Balaam's life. And that's going to be extremely important as we get into next week. Now, continuing on, Balaam, he's going to heed the words spoken by the angel. He's going to go with Balak's men. And eventually he gets to Balak. And we're going to drop down to verse 38. And this is what we read. Right here. And Balaam said to Balak, Look, I have come to you. Now have I any power at all to say anything? The first thing that comes out of Balaam's mouth, excuse me, that comes out of his mouth, he wants to make sure Balak knows, what are you expecting from me? I'm not going to do anything but what the Lord has commanded me. End of discussion. I don't have the power. I know the one who has all the authority, and I know the one who has all the power. And then he goes on and he says this, the word that God puts in my mouth, that I must speak. The word that God puts in my mouth. See, this, this is a game changer. In this exchange, we, we've seen some amazing exchange between the Lord and Balaam, but this is a whole nother level. Balaam is declaring God is going to put words in his mouth, which by definition is now going to put him in a very unique arena. In the arena of the prophets. See, because this is this the very definition. When God puts his words in the mouths of men, and they speak according to his word, they are prophesying. He put his words there. And you can find this all over the place in scripture, right? You can, in Ezekiel, he's a prophet, and he was commanded to go and eat the scroll. What a bizarre thing. Why would he eat the scroll? God's words were on it. And obviously, this isn't a vision, Right? Go eat the scroll because God's words were to come inside. He was to partake of them and then prophesy. John in Revelation, he's told the angel commands him to do something similar. He says, go take the little book out of the angel's hand and eat it. And it will be sweet as honey in your mouth, but in your tummy it's going to be very, very bitter. And what's he supposed to do? You're supposed to go out and prophesy of peoples, of nations and kingdoms. And all you got to do is read Revelation. You'll see this is exactly what happened. Jeremiah the prophet says, I found your words and I ate them. Because so, so this is what I'm saying. So right now, right here, we're confronted with Balaam moving from this radical experience of being a pagan sorcerer to being a prophet of God. This is insane, what we're seeing. And let me build on this to put this further into context. Peter says this, knowing this first... That no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of men, but holy men of God spoke. How? As they were moved by the Holy Spirit. 
Whole nother level. So what you're about to see today is Balaam is going to prophesy the word of the Lord. And I want you to understand he doesn't do this by his own power. It is through the anointing of the Ruach HaKodesh. Now I tell you again, every element I would expect to see with some believer that has accepted the gospel of the Messiah Yeshua is is laid out on the table right here, including the anointing of the Spirit, what was promised. I will anoint my sons and daughters. This is, is made very clear in the prophets. Now moving on, verse 41, let's continue. So it was the next day that Balak took Balaam and brought him up to the high places of Baal. That from there he might observe the extent of the people. Okay, so this is important. Notice Balaam is not choosing the geographical location. Balak is choosing the geographical location. And where does he take him first? What's his first thought? I'm going to take him to the high places of Baal. And you can observe the extent of the people. Now, he's not taking them up to the high places of Baal simply for the sake of being able to see at a much better height, which it accomplishes, no doubt. You can go to Israel today and you can see the old pagan altars sitting high atop on the hills. But here he's bringing them to the geographical location of the temple, the shrines, the altars of Baal. This is where Balak wants this. Why? You've got to follow this because this is going to be important to the narrative. He's bringing him this location because Balak believes the power, the power of darkness, the demonic host of wickedness, spiritual hosts of wickedness. He knows there's power, and this geographical location is very critical. You ever study Freemasonry, you'll know. They take their geographical locations very seriously. Uh, even f- go to flip it to the good side. Does d- God take his geographical location serious? Yerushalayim. So much so, you go to Yerushalayim, and you know there's power. You know there's power. We read it in, in, in uh, Second Chronicles, read it in First Kings. As Solomon is dedicating the temple, it's an amazing, it's an amazing event. You go, you got to go read it. And as he's doing this, he says, anyone, even a Gentile, a foreigner, who turns himself to this temple and prays, then hear their prayer. So the fact that he's calling Balaam to this place is very significant. He's expecting to accomplish his mission. And he's expecting to draw more power from where it's at. So he brings him up, and then we read this in uh, verse 1 in chapter 23. Then Balaam said to Balak, Build seven altars for me here, and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. Several (laughs) things. No matter how many times you warn people, that stuff's going to happen. So here you have Balaam. Saying to Balak, you need to build seven altars and you need to prepare for me because Balaam is going to make the offering. This is important. Number one, please notice that there's a construction of new altars. Wait a second. They're at the high place of Baal. Make no mistake, there's altars there available. He doesn't use them because it's not acceptable. And so he puts up new altars You will notice he's not commanding unclean animals to be sacrificed. These are animals deemed within the Torah to be an acceptable sacrifice. Critical. And let me make a third point here, and this is huge. 
The very offering that is being described here, I would call it hyper-biblical. It's extremely biblical. This is an offering to Yahweh, the God of Israel. We find multiple times this very offering being offered. You can go to 1 Chronicles 15. David, one of the most awesome processions you're going to see in the Old Testament. David, King David, commands that the Ark of the Covenant is to go up to Yerushalayim. He literally calls all Israel to Jerusalem to receive the Ark of the Covenant. I mean, this would have been a mind-blowing procession. And as they're going, what we read in the text, it says, and the Lord would help the Levites. And when he helped and assisted the Levites, what happened? The Levites would offer seven bulls and seven rams. That's what they would offer. It's a very holy burnt offering. I could take you to Ezekiel 45. Ezekiel 45 talks about Pesach and, and Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. And it, and it actually says, you are to sacrifice on every day for seven days, which is ironically parallels the seven altars. For seven days, you shall offer seven bulls and seven rams on those sacred festivals. So I, I want you to appreciate, because there's been some confusion, at least in, in past conversations, as though Balaam was offering a pagan sacrifice. That could not be farther from the truth. This is a sacrifice that is setting up for the word of the Lord to go forth. This is the Lord's sacrifice. Make no mistake. Moving to verse 3, we read this. Then Balaam said to Balak, Stand by your burnt offering, and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me, and whatever he shows me, I will tell you. So he went to a desolate height. Now, just a further help you appreciate the perspective of where Balaam is at right now in the story. The Targums record something fascinating that is attached to what's highlighted here. Right at the end, they attach the following. And actually, you know, actually, you look at different Targums, you got, you got the Jerusalem Targum, you got uh, Pseudo-Jonathan. Pseudo-Jonathan actually talks about how Balaam was bending as a serpent. He was bending as a serpent. What does that mean? Well, the Jerusalem Targum tells you exactly what it means. And Balaam went with a humble heart. Do you understand? Again, I'm telling you, every component that I expect to see, and one of you that says, hey, I've come into the gospel, I've received the gospel of Yeshua of Nazareth, the son of the living God. Everything I would expect to see is in the life of Balaam. From humility to grace to faith to confession of sin to having the heart to desire to do what God wills him to do. All these elements are here. Moving on to verse 4. We read this. Talk about building on top of this. And God met Balaam. What, isn't that interesting? We just got done reading. One of the things that the Jerusalem Targum says right before this is that Balaam has a humble heart. Now you go read the book of James. It says, draw near to God. He will draw near to you. What's the next thing he says? Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. In other words, if you as a believer are going to draw near to God, it's one way. It's on your knees. It's humbling yourself. This is not a coincidence that we read. He humbles himself. And the next thing is God meets him. But it gets better than that. It gets way better. You, you really want some perspective I want to take you to the Targums and show you what it says of what you see highlighted. This, and God meant Balaam. This is what the Targums say. And the word from before Yahweh 
met with Balaam? The word. Now you want, I mean, talk about mind-blowing. When, when I talk about the gospel is embedded in this story, it's all over Balaam. He's literally talking to the word of the Lord. Uh, when you go to Revelation 19, it literally says that is his name. And his name is called the word of God. And John 1.14, and the word was made flesh. And John 1.1, 1, 1, and you can go back and read it. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So when they said God met with Balaam, yeah. Elohim met with Balaam. But this is Yeshua. So he actually is having this conversation. I mean, this whole thing, the, the, the more layers you peel back on this thing, it, it blows the mind. But then he goes on and says, and he said to him, and this is Balaam talking to the Lord, telling him what he's done. I've prepared the seven altars, and I have offered on each altar a bull and a ram. Alluding to the fact that this was, this was the offering that he was commanded. This is an offering of the Lord. How does Lord respond to Balaam saying, this is what I've done? Check this out. Then the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. See? That's how he responds. He's now moving to put a word in his mouth. Now, there's no debate at this point. What is Balaam operating as? He's operating as a prophet of God, of Yahweh, the God of Israel, not some other God. He's prophesying on behalf of him. Verse 7, we read this. And he took up his oracle. All right, I'm going to stop. In, in the Hebrew, when you read this in the Hebrew, that, that term there for oracle is mashal. It's, it's typically translated as proverb, as in the Proverbs of Solomon. Okay, it can be translated, some people translate it prophecy, or here as you see, oracle, or you could think of it as a proverb. Uh, and all three of these are, are really well balanced for what we're about to embark on here. And so he took up his oracle and said, Balak the king of Moab has brought me from Aram, from the mountains of the east. Come curse Jacob for me and come denounce Israel. How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? And how shall I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? Balaam is coming on the scene and saying, do you understand? You cannot undo what God has done. You cannot alter what God has declared. You can't overpower what he has established. It's impossible. Balaam is conceding to the awesome power of God and the reality that he has blessed his people. His promise is to his people. And I'm going to tell you this, especially with what we see going on in the world today, especially in the Middle East, it would do the world well to take note of what Balaam just said. Especially when you think of countries like Iran that are boasting against Israel, that are declaring that they're going to wipe them off the map. I'm going to tell you right now, the word of God is true. You will never wipe Israel off the map. It'll never happen. People have tried. The devil has tried. He's failed every single time. He's got a track record of failing. God has a track record of prevailing. Every time. Moving on to verse 10, we read this. Who can count the dust of Yaakov? Or number one-fourth of Israel. You know, it reminds me of when God took Abraham outside. He goes, lift up your head, count the stars if you're able to number them. You can't. He was asking Abraham to do something. He goes, so you shall your descendants be. You will not be able to count them. That's the awesomeness of this promise. You can't even get your arms wrapped around it. 
And then he says this. Look, this is Balaam. This is what he says. Let me die the death of the righteous and let my end be like his. What does Balaam want? Balaam wants in. Balaam wants what Israel has. He wants the promises. He wants to be a part of the covenant. He wants the blessings. He wants the inheritance. He wants the reward. You look at what he's saying right here. Let me die the death of the righteous. What good is it? Here's the deal. To die the death of the righteous, that's a very specific statement. Why would you want to die the death of the righteous? Because you're going to receive eternal life. Balaam wants it. Balaam sees what Israel has been given. And so he declares, let me die the death of the righteous. Again, I'm going to ask you, every believer that comes into faith in Yeshua and makes that commitment, makes the confession of sin, makes the confession that Yeshua is the Son of God, they dedicate their life, and they're going to follow him. The whole concept that this should have been presented, a concept that they should understand, is that I'm in it to the end. Let me die the death, to the death. Let me die the death of the righteous. You're all in. This is what we see Balaam saying. It's incredible. Verse 11. Then Balak said to Balaam, What have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies. I want to stop. I took you to curse my enemies. What is Balak declaring? He is officially on record declaring Israel is his enemy. Bad move. He is declaring war against Israel. It is a war that cannot be won. It's a suicide mission. You're saying, I want to die by the hand of God. Because you're not even declaring war against Israel, you're declaring war against God. And these nations do not understand what they're doing. It's unbelievable. So he says, I took you to curse my enemies, and look, you have blessed them bountifully. Oh, he doesn't say you blessed them a little bit. Kind of gave them a little pat on the back. Really appreciate you guys. No. You bless them abundantly in an incredible way. Now, let me jump on the other side of the tracks here for a second. If Genesis 12 is true, and that everyone who curses Israel is going to be cursed, right here I see a curse coming on Balak. But if that's true, I also must say the other side is true. Whoever blesses Israel is going to be blessed. What is Balaam doing right now? He's blessing Israel. You can't debate it. In fact, he's going to go on to continue to do it. This is what we're going to see over and over and over again. He's going to bless Israel. So where do we see Balaam at? This guy is firing on all spiritual cylinders. I mean, this is, this is an awesome sight. This is, this is where you want to see him. Is it going to last? No. And that's what makes this story so scary. It was so frightening when you look at what's going on in the church today. Yeah, we'll get more into that in the next one. But moving on to verse 12. So he answered and said, Must I not take heed to speak what the Lord has put in my mouth? In other words, don't you get it, Balak? I already told you. I mean, seriously. I'm not going to go beyond the word of the Lord. And it makes me think of Torah. What does Torah say? Deuteronomy 4.2 It says, You shall not add nor take away from the word. So what Balaam's declaring, literally what we find in Torah. Now, you know, one would think that after Balaam 
has communicated this to Balak, he might lose a little bit of steam and say, you know what? Ah, heck with you. I'll go try to find someone else. I'll look for an alternative uh, to you. Balak doesn't do that. I mean, this is really something. He doesn't do that. Actually, he presses in more, which is he's showing how relentless he really is. And we move to verse 13. Then Balak said to him, please come with me to another place. Now, the place that he's talking about is the top of Pisgah. And the reason that's kind of important, this is where Moses will die at the end of Deuteronomy, is at the top of Pisgah, Mount Nebo. So he said to him, please come with me to another place from which you may see them. You shall see only the outer part of them and shall not see them all. Curse them for me from there. See, geographical locations are important here. Balak's the one who's taking them to these specific locations because he believes that these locations are going to prevail. The last one didn't work. But now we're going to go to the top of Pisgah. Well, how does this work? Well, we're going to drop down to verse 18. Then Balaam took up his oracle, his mashal, his proverb, and said, Rise up, Balak, in here. Listen to me, son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? And I'm going to tell you right off the bat, when it comes to talking about the word of God, which the writer of Hebrews says is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. When it comes to talking about that, this passage right here is fundamental. You've got to lay your foundation with this. Because when, as you look at this, you have two options. You can either believe it or not. In other words, Balaam is saying, and this is a rhetorical, he's asking rhetorical questions. Has he said, will he not do? Don't you understand? When God says it, it is absolute. It is an absolute fact. It is a truth. The word of God cannot be changed. It can't be altered. It can't be diminished. The word of God will never return to him void. When God speaks it, it will accomplish the thing that's sent for it, and it will come back. This is the word of God. So that means, if that's true, that every time you pick up this Bible, if in fact you believe it, I can promise you one thing for certain. It'll change your life. It'll change the way you make decisions. It'll change the way you treat each other. It'll change the way you pray. See, because when Yeshua says, he gets in here, he says, hey, if anyone prays, believing, without doubting, whatever they pray for, they will receive. Well, wait a second. This is, that's the word of the Lord speaking. Do you believe it? Has he said, will he not do? See, it falls on you, it falls on me, whether we're going to believe it or not. And our belief in it will cause us to move. And you'll even notice in that passage, move mountains. That's the kind of thing. You know, when Yeshua says, you know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. You can choose to believe it or not. See, but you have to believe it. If if you want eternal life, you have to believe in the word. It is certain. When, When the Lord talks about in Exodus, chapter 32, and what he says, he says, whoever sins against me, I will blot him out of my book. Do you believe the word of the Lord? Has he said, will he not do? When he talks about in Psalm 68, that uh, he's going to wound the head of his enemies, the hairy scalp of one who continues to go on in his sins. Do you believe it? 
Has he said, will he not do? See, there's so many people that are caught up in sins, they don't believe in the word, they don't believe they're going to be called into account. It's an atrocity. This is where we get ourselves in trouble. This is where, where, where people get themselves in trouble. It says, whoever calls upon the name of Yeshua will be saved. There is no other way. You can't get to heaven any other way. You have to believe the word. He has spoken it. And so, you know, this is what Balaam is conveying to Balak, and Balak doesn't believe it. See, do you want to be cursed? Don't believe the word. Don't believe that God is a man of his word. And basically, when you don't believe he's a man of his word, when you continue on in your sin thinking there's going to be no judgment, or you think there's a different way than Yeshua, Jesus, to get to heaven, you're going to find out otherwise. You're actually calling God a liar. You're declaring he's a liar by your own actions. It's absolutely demonic. All right. You know, let me say one more thing. I'm willing to bet my life that the word of God is true. This is, that's how serious we have to get, amen? amen? In this generation, you're going to have to bet your life that the word of God is true. Every bit of it. The good, the bad. You have to believe it all. All right, moving on to verse 20. This is what we read. Behold, I have received a command to bless. He has blessed and I cannot reverse it. God's promises are irrevocable to Israel. We know this. We can read in Romans. God's promises are irrevocable. They're sure. They're immovable. When he says something, you can guarantee it. Now, having said that, you know, the Targums record something else that Balaam says right after this, in conjunction with this. And I want to put this up here because the sages recognize something about God's irrevocable promise to Israel. It can't be destroyed. It can't be diminished. It can't be changed. There's nothing nobody can do about it. Pay close attention because this is important. In the Targums, we read the following. I see not among them of the house of Yaakov such as worship idols. They who serve false idols are not established among the tribes of the sons of Israel. In other words, and this is right in our passage, what it's saying is that they could be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They could be called, they're the ones that God made covenant with. They're the ones that God has given the promise to. However, if any one of them abandons, rejects the one true God of Israel, goes off and begins to worship other idols, it actually tells you, don't think for a moment that you're going to be saved. You will not be established. It goes on. They of the house of Yaakov who use divination are not established, nor the enchanters who enchant among the greatness of Israel. Do you get that? I mean, that, this, this is incredible. This is making sure that you don't go off the deep end to think that, you know what, I can live like hell and I can inherit heaven. It's going to all be fine. Even the story, embedded in the story, gives the warning don't think like that. You cannot. You want to abandon God? You're going down. And all you need to do is, is to realize this. Is just look at the entire Bible. Look at story after story. Why is it God wiped an entire generation of Israel, the ones he promised he'd bring into the promised land, why did he wipe them 
off the map. His own people, because they rejected him. They were unfaithful. They didn't trust him. They didn't believe in him. And this happens. So, I mean, it's startling. This is a startling reality that you either believe in the word of God when he says, this is what's going to happen if you continue on in your sins. I'll sharpen my sword. Or you turn in repentance and fear him and get the blessing. Absolutely amazing. Now, pushing on to verse 21. This is what we read. And he has not observed iniquity in Yaakov, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among him. Verses 20 and 21 are so profound and so powerful and packaged so incredibly. This, this, this whole prophecy, is. hopefully you're going to appreciate what I'm about to lay out here. But when you look at this, that he's not observing iniquity, let me begin by asking the obvious question. Is what he's saying is that when Israel sins, no matter what they do, they decide to walk in whatever way they walk, that he's going to turn a blind eye? That he's not going to acknowledge that? Or sweep it under the rug? Nothing to see here? He doesn't do that. Just read through this, you just do not see him do that. In fact, what he tells you is sin separates you from God. There will be a cause and effect. There is a cause and effect. You want to do this, you're going to reap what you sow. Sin has a direct impact on your relationship with the Lord, has a direct impact on your prayer life. There's no debate. So what is it talking about? What is the context? What is the proper understanding? He has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor wickedness in Israel. It's talking about forgiveness. This is, this, this, this is so beautiful. It is talking about the forgiveness of sins. What does David say? It says in Psalm 32, Blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. What is this whole interaction between Balaam and Balak about? Blessing. It's all about the blessing that is upon Israel. And what does Balaam come out? And what is he telling us? This is where the blessing comes from. This is what the blessing is. It is the forgiveness of sins. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed their transgressions from them. They're never to be known again. They're never to be seen again. That's an amazing thing. Let me take it a step further. What do we know about the new covenant? There's something about the new covenant that is so pivotal. This is prophesying about the new covenant. New covenant says, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. And it's interesting, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 8 and chapter 10, and I think most of you know this after going through that series, is very clear about how that happened. The whole book is very clear. It happened through Yeshua. And so... It's, it's, we're talk, here we have this passage talking all about forgiveness, talking about the new covenant. I would argue talking about Yeshua. And how would I do that? Well, look at what it says here. The shout of a king is among them. Let me put up the Targums translation of that, their version. Targum says, and the trumpets of the king Mashiach resound among them. Mind-blowing in the context of here we're talking about God's not going to recognize any sin in Israel. There's going to be total mercy, total forgiveness for them. Oh, what a coincidence. And now we're going to talk about the Mashiach, King Messiah, who we know for a fact is Yeshua. 
who have brought in the new covenant where he will not remember their sins anymore. Absolutely powerful prophecy. Moving to verse 22. God brings them out of Egypt. He has strength like a wild ox. And then he says this, For there is no sorcery against Yaakov, nor any divination against Israel. It now must be said of Yaakov and of Israel, Oh, what God has done. Now you think about off the heels of verses 20 and 21 and understanding that there's forgiveness, there's mercy. The king of glory, the Mashiach, has stepped in. And now there's a shout of the king. You think about this, and the next thing you read is there's no power. The darkness has no power over those who have been forgiven. That is an awesome statement. That is an awesome thought to behold. And so... You have to understand this. Those of you who follow Yeshua have dedicated your life to him and you mean business about your faith. Don't worry about the witches. Don't worry about the warlocks praying against you. And they are. I cannot tell you, and I I mean this, I don't know. I lost count. How many times people have contacted me and said, Daniel, just so you know, I'm so worried. I'm concerned. I know there are witches praying against you. There are warlocks praying against you. They're trying to destroy the ministry. They're doing incantations all night long, blah, blah, blah. I've had people come here I've never met before just to come here and tell me that they're, they're concerned. And, I, and they're, they're genuinely concerned. I'm thankful for this. But, I, you know, it doesn't move me. It, 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 I just need to focus on Yeshua. I need to be plugged into him. I'm not worried about this. Now, does that mean that God does not give the enemy power over us at times for his glory? Oh, he does. For his glory, yes, he does. And we got many examples in scripture. We could talk about Paul who is afflicted by a demon because of this abundance of revelations that he had. Let's take you down a little bit and make sure you stay in church so the Lord allows access. But it's according to the Lord's doing for his glory. Job is another good example of this. But the key thing you got to walk away with is the beautiful promise and the power of Yeshua, the Mashiach, right? There's no sorcery. You can't, and the devil isn't going to get to impose his will against you. And you need to remember this stuff that we're going through. As we get into, in your own life, on a daily basis, but as we get into the next teaching on the following week. Verse 24. Look, a people rises like a lioness and lifts itself up like a lion. It shall not lie down until it devours the prey and drinks the blood of the slain. Then... Balak said to Balaam, uh, neither curse them at all, nor bless them at all. Because he just got done saying, Israel is going to rise up. They're going to drink the blood of the slain. And others are going to wipe the floor with you. You're dead. You're as good as dead. This is the power that has been given to them. To trample on serpents and scorpions and all over the power of the enemy. This is what we get from Yeshua. And so this is awesome. Now, now Balak, look at what he does. Kind of moves into uh, a Switzerland negotiation. Uh, here you go. He was like, okay, you're not cursing them. I get that. Okay, but here's the deal. Okay, how about just not bless them either? Just do nothing. Step back. And here's, here's what's incredible. Balaam can't do that. He's given the command to bless Israel. And guess what Balaam's going to do and going to continue to do? Bless Israel. This, at least today, we're going to see that in this story. Now, 
With that said, Balak is not real happy with this outcome. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't fly the coop yet. He actually invites up uh, Balaam to another place, specifically the top of Peor. Again, geographically, very critical, because what you'll notice as you continue on in Numbers, that this god, this false demon god, Baal, is known as Baal of Peor. And now you're going to the top of Peor. Again, certain that there are shrines or altars to this demon god there. So Balaam agrees. He goes up to the top of Peor and he commands Balak the same thing that he commanded him before. Build seven altars. We're not going to use these other altars. Build seven altars. I need seven bulls and seven rams. And then we get to chapter 24 and we read the following. Check this out. Now when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel. Please look at this carefully. Balaam is recognizing that it brings the Lord joy. It does something to the heart of God when he sees his people being blessed. Now you think about that. And then consider what he goes on to say. He did not go as at other times to seek to use sorcery, but he set his face toward the wilderness. Isn't that interesting? Balaam's relationship with the Lord is having an impact on how he lives his life. That's what I would expect someone that's absolutely entrenched in the gospel to do. How many of you, when you came into the faith, that you knew everything? Oh, the day you came into the faith, well, you just knew it all. Torah, Torah download, there you go. Nobody knew nothing. All you knew is Yeshua, Jesus, had been died, he'd been buried, and he rose again. He could save you from your sins and bring you into eternal life and save you from hell. That's what you knew. And you trusted in him. And that's the beauty of faith. That's what's required. But then what happens is as you begin to enter into relationship with him and you begin to read his word, what happens? It starts to show some ugly stuff that is still residue, that's still there. And as time goes, what's supposed to happen is you'll be like, oh, this pleases God to do these things. But it doesn't please him to do other things. And these other things, I got to get rid of those. I got to get those out of the camp. This is exactly what we see happening in Balaam's life. He's getting that stuff out of the camp. You know, the more you look at the story as a believer, the more you're going to appreciate just how relevant it is for us today, how relevant it is for a church that is being ripped apart. I mean, at its foundations. Now, as we continue, Balaam's going to take up his oracle again. I'm going to bless Israel some more. In verse 2, we read this, And Balaam raised his eyes and saw Israel encamped according to their tribes, and the Spirit of God came upon him. What I would expect to see, someone who is in relationship with the Lord, someone who has all these elements of the gospel firing the anointing. The anointing has come upon him. He truly is a prophet of God at this point. Then he took up his oracle and said, The utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor, the utterance of a man, oh, whose eyes are wide open. Now you think about that statement, because that mirrors what Yeshua talks about in the New Testament. For those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. I think of Matthew 13, and his, his disciples come to him and say, Why do you speak to them in parables? Well, I speak to them in parables because to you it's been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But to them, it is not given. 
And then he goes on, so seeing that they may not see and hearing they may not hear because their heart has grown dull. But then Yeshua goes on and tells his disciple, but blessed are your eyes, your eyes. They're blessed for you see and your ears for you hear. See, what you need to understand, the fact that Balaam's eyes are open is telling you that as he has gone to bless Israel, he is being blessed. His eyes are open. He sees things for what they really are. Now, as we continue, verse 4. The utterance of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open, and listen to what he sees. How lovely are your tents, O Yaakov, your dwellings, O Israel, like valleys that are stretched out, like gardens by the riverside, like uh, aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars behind the waters. Verse 7. He shall pour water, think of Maim Chaim, think of living water. He shall pour water from his buckets and his seed, this is a reference to Yeshua, the very same way Paul understood it in Galatians, shall be in many waters. Think about that. And waters prophetically, and it's all over the place, we could, we could do a study on that. But waters represents people's nations and tongues. And so here his seed is, shall be in many waters. His king, Israel's king, the Mashiach, shall be higher than Agag. And his kingdom shall be exalted. His kingdom's going to be exalted. Verse 8, he goes on. God brings him out of Egypt. He has strength like a wild ox. He shall consume the nations, his enemies. He shall break their bones and pierce them with his arrows. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? Blessed is he who blesses you, and cursed is he who curses you. So here, is, it's at this moment, Balak loses it. He's enraged, basically slamming his fist down. You know what, Balaam, I brought you here for the purpose of cursing my enemies, and all you've done is bless them these three times. This is what you've done. He goes, you know what, I was going to honor you, Balaam, but I'm done with you. I ain't going to honor you anymore. And Balaam's like... What did you think was going to happen? Well, seriously, this is, this is the reality. I'm going to keep coming. I'm going to keep blessing. I'm going to keep saying nothing more than what the Lord has said. That's an awesome thing. We're going to end here for today. Everything that we have covered last week and everything that we covered this week, you are going to need as we get into the final week. And so with that said, we're going to go into a time of prayer.